The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's go to Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist, because, you know, we talk about earnings, but the reality is we still have to talk Ira Jersey, as much as we want to try to avoid talking about the Fed, the Fed is moving, uh, continues to move this market. So, Ira, what's some of the latest work you and your team have been doing about kind of what's going on in the Treasury market? Again, we got a two year 4.7%, the 10 year 3.9, uh, I'm sorry, 3.93%. Wow. What are you guys looking at? Yeah, so that that 3.9% on the 10-year was a pretty important technical level. And, um, you know, even though longer term I'm a, a bit constructive on the long end of the market, there's clearly um, clearly the market is very offered right now, and, and we're likely to see um, a break now above 4% in the 10-year in the near term. So so that the next important technical level is actually around 4.25% on, on the 10-year. And I, I think there, there's two... Um, things driving this. Number one is just the idea that inflation is going to continue to be a problem. You have um, some of the services numbers like ISM, some of the manufacturing data, PMI data that just came out uh, looking pretty strong. You had the Philadelphia Services Index come out this morning in positive territory after being in negative territory. And that, that tends to follow um, excuse me, uh, the services inflation tends to uh, follow what, what some of these services indexes are doing. Um, so, so the fact that you have positive Philly Fed um, services index going up is, is you know, suggesting that you're not going to get um, a, a decline in inflation. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing inflation expectations today up by five basis points. By the way, do we have yeah. – uh, hey, Ken Fellew, do we have a Philadelphia terrestrial radio station? No. No. All right. Who cares about Philadelphia, Ira? I love, you, you why, 11, why does it matter? I love cheese steaks. in Philly, by the way. I've, I've actually listened to 1130 in, in Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Nice. We love Philadelphia. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we love you, Philadelphians. <laughs> How important is this? I mean, Philadelphia Fed survey versus Atlanta versus New York. Are these very regional surveys or do they all do national work? No, those are all regional surveys, um, and and then they uh, they then they ha do have a national survey for uh, for the PMI, and and obviously the the different Fed districts kind of get together and create something called the Beige Book, and and these are uh, these monthly survey data are part of that uh, larger narrative as to what's going on in the different Federal Reserve Bank regions, um, but but Philadelphia is is big enough and has enough. You know, both services and manufacturing that that you know it has over um, the course of many decades been at least a little bit of a leading indicator. You know, sometimes better than others. So, so you have to take the full mosaic and look at all of the, these data. And certainly, there's going to be some regions that are doing better than others, and some that are obviously going to be doing worse. Um, you know, we had a significant period of time in in the intermediate period over the last decade, in between the two crises, where you know the the South and Southeast were doing very well. So you had like the president of 
the you know Dallas Fed would be very hawkish, whereas everyone else was like things aren't so rosy because California was still doing bad, New York and Northeast were doing bad. So you know Boston, New York, Philadelphia, um, you know Fed Reserve presidents were saying, well, we're not as optimistic as you are maybe down in Texas. So so again, like the Federal Federal Reserve obviously is looking at the whole country, but there are certainly regional differences, and that's and and quite frankly, that is one of the benefits of having. Um, uh, the Federal Reserve System be similar to how it is with with all of these regions doing their, their own work um, and, and trying to determine what's going on within their their you know one of their twelve districts. All right, Iris. So what's the market telling us now in terms of what this Fed is going to do over the, the remainder of this year? Is it because I think at one point we were seeing twenty five basis points, maybe a second twenty five basis point, then a pause, and maybe even cutting rates later in the year? Is where are we now? Yeah, so now we're we're still three twenty five basis point hikes. Now is is more or less what's priced. Um, some small chance of, of fifty basis point in there for the for the March meeting. Um, I, I think that they're going to be in in doing twenty fives now. The question is how many more twenty five basis point hikes, and do they get you know towards six percent? I, I don't think that they'll get there. But then again, you know some of this data is just is just surprisingly strong. Um, so, so you can't completely discount the possibility. So, so the market is thinking now five and a half percent on the upper bound for the Fed funds rate, and then um, still some pretty high chance of a cut before the end of the year. And, and I still think that that's what the market's mispricing. It's not necessarily yeah. mispricing five and a quarter, five and a half. It's more that you know we're we're pricing for for cuts before year end, which which I think is very unlikely. I just heard um, somebody may not be buying Liverpool. And uh, we're still we still care about Man U. In fact, Paul, did you know Man U, Manchester United, the soccer team? It's U.S. listed and traded. Yes, M-A-N-U. Yep. I, I, I just, mean, it sounds like the name for a reindeer, like an Inuit name. But anyway, Man U, why? Well, well, they have an American owner, so and and they went and they went public. They're actually for sale, according to a lot of. Reporting being done actually on uh, by Bloomberg uh, in in the sports business, like a six billion dollar sale. Yeah, so it's a it's, it's a reasonably big company, right? It's a global brand, um, and they're playing in a cup final this coming week. So before Paul asked me what I'm watching this weekend, <laughs> it's Manchester United versus Newcastle, a currently uh, Middle Eastern owned for, um, club versus a likely to be Middle Eastern owned <laughs> club going to be playing in a cup final in an English in, in English cup. yeah exactly. good stuff. All right, Ira, great stuff as always. Ira Jersey, he's our chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, also a avid soccer fan. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. reporting some numbers forecast a little disappointing stocks off about let's call it five percent here uh three hundred dollars a share this is a company with a 300 billion dollar market cap uh let's break it down with drew redding he covers the stock for bloomberg intelligence he's a research analyst over there hey drew talk to us about hd i mean when i was in an hd store a couple weeks ago packed um i don't know seems like people are still buying wood and nails and hammers and stuff doing that do-it-yourself thing what's going on yeah, I mean, Home Depot has been really resilient. 
Um, if you look over the last couple of years, they've grown sales over 40%. They've added about $50 billion in sales over the last three years. Um, but we're in a little bit of a different environment now where we're starting to see some more stress on the consumer. And I think that's what their guidance really hints at. It's that there's going to be some spending pullback among consumers. You've got a weaker housing market. You've got some anxiety over where home prices are heading. And then at the same time, you put on top of that, they're going to have some margin contraction because of investments they're making um, to their hourly employees. So that's what's weighing on the stock today. And they've underperformed this year as well. You know, while the rest of us have been rallying, Home Depot is little changed. With today's drop, they're down 5% year to date. Um do investors not like the Home Depot story? As Is it not kind of techy enough? Did it not do as badly last year as the other winners this year? Yeah, so they, they're actually up about 25% since September. So they've had a nice rally. But I think w- what we're seeing now, and you know, this is kind of how I'm thinking about the guide, is they haven't really de-risked 2023 fully. And I think that's something in- investors are, are concerned about. When we were thinking about the market next year, home improvement broadly. We were looking at the market being down about mid-single digits, Home Depot outperforming maybe down 2 to 3%. Their guidance suggests that the, the broader market for home improvement will be down about only 1% to 2%, call it, and they'll be about flat. So I think there's still some concern out there in the market that there is room for, for things to deteriorate a little bit more than what they're indicating. They also called out uh, some compensation issues. they got to pay people more you know, the smart people that help you out in the aisles and tell you where to find stuff, they got to pay them more, right? Yeah, that's what the investment is in. It's really in that customer service aspect, something Home Depot has been well known for. So they're going to invest an additional $1 billion in their hourly employees over the next year. That's going to contribute to about a 60 basis point contraction um, in operating margin. And, you know, it, it's, it was a little surprising just because they've made so many investments over the last years with their employees through COVID. But I think it really just highlights, you know, the tight labor market that's out there and how difficult it is to attract employees and also to retain the ones that they already have. So I put up the comp screen. I always like to look at um, just a five-year shot of any company. Home Depot is, over the last five years, up total return 85%. So not bad. That's better than the S&P, total return 60 Three percent, and it's they're both better than Lowe's, which is only up twenty five percent over the past five years. Why is Lowe's such a big underperformer? Is Home Depot just kicking it, or is Lowe's dropping the ball? So when I think I think when you're talking about the comparison between the two, it probably makes sense to look a little bit more near term because uh, Lowe's has been some of a turnaround story over the last several years. They brought in new management. They're reemphasizing the professional customer somewhere that they've been underpenetrated. And that's really been one of the sources of outperformance from a Home Depot versus the Lowe's. It's Home Depot's 45% exposure to professional customers versus Lowe's at about 25%. Um, at the same time, they're, they're, Lowe's is starting to reinvest in their online business, which is something they've neglected over the last several years. So Lowe's is more of a turnaround story. They've made some good strides. They're improving their profitability. And they've also narrowed that comp gap with Home Depot that has been you know, pretty wide over the last several years. Hey, Drew, uh, in addition to Home Depot, I know you cover the housing industry overall here. We got existing home sales uh, came in with a 7% decline month over month. Consensus was for a 2% increase. So real underperformance there. Are people not buying 
homes? Are they not listing homes? What's going on in the housing market? So the fact that people aren't listing homes is, is definitely one of the issues. Um, you know, 92% of outstanding mortgages have a rate below 5.5%, so there's a lot of disincentive for people to move, so they're not putting their homes on the market. At the same time, unlike what we saw in the last downturn, you don't have those forced sellers, and that's because people are locked into fixed-rate mortgages, and they don't have the adjustable mortgages. So uh, a big part of it is certainly inventory, but let's not ignore the fact that affordability is you know, near the worst that it's ever been. We heard um, some commentary from some of the builders recently that as we got into January and rates pulled back to just under 6% from as high as 7% in November, that buyers started to come back out into the market. Um, so demand was pretty strong in January and early February. But at the same time, over the last couple of weeks, rates are back up 80 basis points. So, you know, we're approaching 7% again. So we think just as quickly as, as demand kind of bounced back, you know, we could see things kind of fall off in the other direction. Are there any that you like better than the rest when you look at KB, Lennar, Pulte, all the home builders? So I think there, you know, there's a couple different criteria you, that we look at when we think about how we look at the builders on a relative um, sense in, in a slowing economic environment. We like those with scale because they can you know, leverage the trades more. They could spread their costs out. They could push back against their suppliers. Um, so those names would be Adir Horton and Lennar. And then from a product perspective, we like builders who are focused more on affordability. Um, we don't care so much what they call their segments, whether it's entry level, move up, but we want builders who are competing by price with the resale market. So some of the names that come um, to mind there, again, Dr. Horton, a KB Home, um, LGI over the longer term. So, Drew, just real quickly here, I mean, it, it, when we think about the new home market and that affordability mm -hmm. segment, that's been a real knock on the industry that they just haven't built enough uh, affordable uh, and, and lower end or, you know, kind of first time buyer units. Is that changing in the industry? So it has started to change over the last several years. When we were, uh, you know, in the early days of the cycle, all the emphasis was placed on the move up market because that's where the demand was. That's where the margins were. But over the last couple of years, we have seen a shift towards the lower end of the market, because from a demographics perspective, that's where the demand is going to come from. Um, you know, we think that will continue to be the case once we kind of get through the, the down part of this cycle. We do think that the lower end of the market will will show relative strength. All right, Drew, great stuff. Appreciate it. As always, Drew Redding, he's a research analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He follows the housing market and all the industries around that, including uh, the do-it-yourself uh, retailers like Home Depot uh, and Lowe's and Home Depot, uh, forecasting lower earnings uh, in part due to some concerns about the top line in a recessionary environment, but also because their wage costs are increasing. And again, Home Depot employs half a million people. So yeah. you got to pay those folks well, that are in the aisles. Also joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker she Studio. She knows about Shine. Shine. Let me just let me just give you a definition. Shine debt. This is according to Bloomberg News is a German promissory note syndicated like both loans and bonds that can have both fixed and floating rates. It's turning into a niche German instrument into an increasingly popular funding option for big European companies. I learned something new. And I say today. she will know because Amanda Robello just walked in the studio. She right. is head of passive sales, yep. U.S. onshore, but for DWS Group. Yep. So Amanda, talk to us about how you're viewing the markets here. We've had a kind of a, it feels like a little bit of a sea change over the past few weeks, maybe in response to some economic data that came in, maybe a little bit hotter than expected. And CPI, PPI, retail sales, uh, however you want to look. We had some PMI data today. It seems like the Fed 
maybe has a little bit more support for higher for longer. Is that how you guys are reading it? Yeah, we think that um, it's not all doom and gloom, but we think it's still worthwhile thinking about potential volatility in the markets going forward. I think, you know, Biden and uh, the the trip that everyone's been speaking about has really thrown the cat among the pigeons. So volatility is going to be here for the rest of the year. Um, there are some buy opportunities, though, and we think it makes sense to think about um, burden hand theory, locking in um, dividends, um, having less focus on price appreciation of stocks. Really? So we've actually heard from somebody, not you, but this was a several weeks ago, and it just stuck with me because I, simple uh, catchphrases stick with me, like the decade of the dividend. I mean, I don't know, do I go out and just buy some of these big three, four, five percent yielding stocks and, and then maybe put the rest of it at a two-year treasury bill at 4.7 percent? Or you can buy a dividend-focused ETF. Ah, okay. So, tell, tell me about that. Definitely. So um, we've got two on our side, which have been quite interesting in the past couple of uh, weeks and months. So the first one, S&PD. Um, we've spoken in the past with you guys about our ESG S&P 500 fund. Uh, this is now an ESG uh, S&P Dividend Aristocrats fund all right, that we've so, just launched. All right, so there's a lot going on there. Mm. It, it, uh, it's an ETF with dividend-paying stocks that are also good ESG companies. Exactly. And Boy, you so, got everything in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the reason why the ESG part here is interesting is because um, ESG is also a very good way to think about intangible off-balance sheet okay. um, risk. So that's kind of helping with the volatility component. Also, the dividend aristocrats methodology, I think a lot of investors are familiar with this, is about quality, sustainable dividends. So not just uh, names which are going to pay out 4 or 5%, but then not invest in CapEx, for example. Um, so that's an interesting side from that perspective. And the fund is yielding about five, uh, 50 basis points, sorry, uh, more than uh, just S&P alone. Um, but international equities as well are also quite interesting as well. So these typically yield more than U.S. equities. So thinking about more diversification right. in the portfolio. And there you can be yielding as much as 5.25%. Wow. Are we in an age where, I mean, you say ESG, and it makes me think of, you know, uh, climate change, global warming, we're against that sort of thing, right? But this dividend holds ExxonMobil. Yeah. This dividend holds Coca-Cola. Yeah. Um, can you just put anything you want in an ESG ETF? As long as you call it ESG, it's a better seller because those <laughs> things are not good for like humanity or the environment. Coke so I, I you're you're equating Coca-Cola with big energy? Well, no, Coke. <laughs> I mean, I would say even executives there would have to acknowledge a, a huge part of giving people diabetes globally, right? And uh, ExxonMobil, I don't even have to explain that one. We all know that doesn't sound like an ESG name. So um, sad but true that, uh, you know, maybe Coca-Cola has added to the obesity crisis and ExxonMobil obviously maybe? to Maybe? You think? <laughs> but but Don't go down are. this rabbit hole with it's, me. Uh, the thing is, though, it's about which of the companies which also have uh, most scope for CapEx in uh, diversifying. So Coca-Cola, for example, is included because there is a great deal of CapEx which is in, like, diversifying their revenue streams to things like water and health drinks and so forth, health products as well. Um, then on The, the health drinks are, for the most part, packed with sugar, by the way. <laughs> and responsible consumption is just fine. Yeah. Thank and you. do you think the, a large part of Americans are See, responsibly consuming these beverages? So, all right. So, Amanda, give us an, another sense of where you're seeing flows right now. I mean, I kind of feel like ESG 
has peaked in terms of mm -hmm. interest level. I don't know if that's right or wrong. Maybe that's just here in the U.S. I know it's still popular, a little bit more popular in Europe. Give us a sense of where you're seeing flows right now. So we've been seeing a lot of flows going into China, especially really? um, ahead of when we saw the reopening of society, um, seeing higher consumer spending again, just because people are out and about at the end of the day. Um, our fund Asher has been quite popular because it's tracking the local index, so the equivalent of the S&P 500 for China, which is the CSI 300. And um, we've also seen as well um, a lot of interest in this international dividend uh, play that I spoke about before, HDEF. Um, that's been driven very much by just thinking about the hurdle rate that investors need to overcome versus the risk-free rate at the moment. And international dividend-focused strategies are definitely providing an opportunity there. What are just ETF funds in general? What have the flows been? Like last year was such a bad year for investors. Equity, fixed income, there's no place to hide in your 60-40 portfolio. Mm -hmm. Kind of... Great year for ETF launches, though. Great yep. year for ETF launches. So how, tell us about how the ETF market kind of behaved or, or evolved in that in last year going into this year yeah so last year and um, we already start to see the trend as well this year I think on the ETF side there continues to be a lot of innovation uh, much easier to bring uh, funds to market than on the mutual fund side and um, just because you don't have investors looking for the three-year track record they can kind of buy them typically um, straight away then we've seen flows going into some of those new products so we do still see a lot of ESG products but I think you're absolutely right that um, maybe uh, there's been more focus on risk management and things that we're more familiar with. So what's been interesting is you've actually seen some value come back as well. So um, we've seen a lot of the value ETFs start to attract assets. Um, also short duration as well. So just in light of the uncertainty, cash plus kind of products as well mm -hmm. are doing very well too. Short duration, um, treasury focused funds. And then on the flip side of that, we've seen high yield, but high yield that's very considered. So just thinking about the boost that you get in the yield, um, investors, um, advisors being paid for um, adding risk to portfolios. High yield is actually not as terrible as historically. The corporate default rate is actually pretty low at yep. the moment versus historically. So high yield is providing opportunities too. But in general, do you see inflows continuing? Do you see more you know, mutual fund conversions, more launches, just the ETF industry growing further in 2023. Yeah, definitely. And I think that uncertainty in the market, the ETF is definitely adding a lot of value on the active side. The transparency that's offered is really invaluable to investors at the moment. They just need to know what's going on. I think everyone understands that. Um, transparency gonna... and low cost, and low right? Cost, I mean, that's huge. Sure. Exactly. exactly. 10 basis points makes a huge difference over a Especially decade. Especially when you're suffering a loss, right? So, yes. Yeah. What does the Fidelity do of the world, the big mutual fund companies? Are they, are they getting into the ETF game? So I don't tend to comment um, okay. on competitors, but yeah, they have launched a number of funds and we've also seen a number of other typically active houses starting to enter in the ETF space. Let's say, yeah, in general, yeah. other companies are getting big into it. Like yep. your headhunter is calling you more and more often. <laughs> like, Amanda, I've got a lot of job offers for you. <laughs> and and you're like, no, <laughs> I love DWS because it's such a great company, right? Because I get to talk about short times. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, so I mean, I just can't, where does this ETF business go, do you think? I mean, maybe just give us a sense of, of the, 
I don't know, the third-party managed money out there. How much is ETFs versus mutual funds and kind of how's that changing? Yeah, we're actually expecting the next year the amount of assets in ETFs versus mutual funds is going to um, like take over. So oh, okay. at the moment, mutual funds are still slightly ahead, but ETFs will take over next year. Um, one of the key, uh, I think it's really about this cost component and also about the transparency as well, but also operationally as well. If you think about it, with a mutual fund, you don't need to sign up to a transfer agent. If you've got access to the exchange, you can just buy it that way. It's very easy. Dealing costs also very uh, very cheap as well. When you think about the pricing mechanics too, um, you don't have the swing pricing component where existing investors are penalized by new flows or outflows from existing uh, investors. So there's also kind of a, a more fairness, so to speak. But um, I think what clients are looking for at the moment um, in these tough markets is just yep. more niche yep. exposures funnily enough so I, I man what a what a story this has been over the last just for me i've been aware of the last 10 or 15 years but boy the etf growth has just been extraordinary if i'm abigail johnson up at fidelity i'm like oh my god where's my growth coming from amanda Rebello, head of passive sales us onshore at dws group uh joining us to give us the latest on the etf space continues to attract assets the countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the conversation of the morning. Let's get right to it. Shevin Yeltekin, Dean at the University of Rochester Business School, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, what a resume. Undergraduate from Wellesley, PhD from Stanford, former assistant professor in economics at Kellogg School, those good folks out in Chicago, president, uh, former professor of economics at Carnegie Mellon, uh, and now at University of Rochester. So uh, great, great stuff. And she is also Turkish, and she has been kind enough to share maybe a quick view of kind of what's going on in Turkey right now. So many difficult, difficult um, times over there with all of the earthquakes, another earthquake just a couple of days ago. Shevin, thanks so much for joining us here in studio. I know you're going to be going back to Turkey, you mentioned next week. Kind of give us an overview of what you're hearing from friends and family about yes it's on. uh it's thank you for having me and it's a complete devastation really um two major earthquakes hit about two weeks ago as everybody knows the the what i'm hearing is that the the situation on the ground is actually much worse than even what the news can depict okay. um there's just not very much organized help going to various regions it spanned 10 cities so that's wow. another reason why getting kind of that scale of help um you know we're now almost nearing 50,000 uh, yep. lives lost and a lot more to come because not everybody has been identified or rescued mm. and another earthquake hit just yesterday yes. in the same region um so there's a lot of anxiety a lot of sadness just um, there's a lot of anxiety over whether there's going to be more earthquakes in the northern fort line um, and it's really the whole country is in a state of mourning mm. and, and and before we get to um, you know any anything else is the economic situation there making it so much more difficult I know Turkey has had huge inflation problems they've got uh, incredibly high interest rates I'm hopefully the international community steps in as much as possible but 
it's got to be more difficult. Yes, absolutely. The economic situation had not been great. Uh, the, you know, the Turkish lira had de- deteriorated against the dollar and major currencies not, quite here a bit. Bloomberg, we talk about the Turkish lira a lot. Exactly. <laughs> so, so the other thing is that the Turkish growth in the last sort of fifteen to twenty years has been growth by construction. And that's what we're seeing the repercussions of, because some of these buildings that are relatively brand new should not have collapsed, being that we we live in an earthquake region, and that's because the the sort of the e- economic stimulus through construction has led to this mm. overblown investment that's not always up to code, that's mm. not always well done. Yeah. Um, lots of amnesties uh, right before elections to be able to get the votes uh, and. So- so it's it's is now there pressure it's in, on the government building. Do you think, or is it's that the government is just sort of giving a lot of um, you know basically signing off on a lot of development okay. um, in areas that would be really not a good idea if you ask the engineers and <laughs> and everybody else. So let's talk about um, sort of this the fiscal stimulus issue from our yeah. point of view here in the U.S. and how it's affecting sure. the U.S. economy. I mean, I, we're obviously we're going to continue to cover that. Uh, disaster, mm-hmm. the tragedy there, and and hope that uh, everyone can help out as much as possible. Here in the U.S., um, we also had a ton of economic stimulus. Yes. I mean, <laughs> trillions of dollars, obviously, from the government, and then um, the Fed blew up its balance sheet to like nine trillion. Mm-hmm. And now we're, I guess, dealing with the repercussions of that. Um, it looked like a guaranteed recession. Uh, as the Fed started to fight inflation, and more people now are talking optimistically about a soft landing or no landing. What's your view? I have been, actually, I've been on the optimistic part for a long time now because um, the labor market has been very, very strong as we see it. And also um, just businesses' finances um, and liquidity and household finances have not been in, you know, bad. It's, that's why I think there's just so much been resilience in certain pockets of the economy that I was never one of those that said that a recession well, is very likely. The problem, though, is... You know, obviously the labor market is strong and the economy was growing. But the, if the Fed comes in and raises ba- uh, raises um, rates by 450 mm-hmm. basis points in a year and says they're on a path to keep going, that's the concern, right? The yes. concern is that, um, you know, when we see mortgages, for example, going up to 7% in a market where houses are already not affordable, um, that just makes it more difficult for the economy to keep humming along. Yes, I mean we're we're definitely seeing that correction in the in the housing market, and I think there's a distribution issue as well. Um, you know, who is it really affecting? It's it's not affecting necessarily kind of you know the 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 better off companies that have some liquidity base. It's not really affecting sort of higher income folks, but credit has tightened for a lot of small and and medium businesses, and they've already hurting because of the wage bill has been going up with that kind of unemployment right. fig- and uh, figures and, and costs yeah. have been going up. Inflation is there, so for them it's less about the recession. It's about the cost of doing business, whether it's it's being mm-hmm. able to borrow. And or um, being able to kind of pay the wage bill. And that's what I worry about. It's really that, and that fuels inflation too, because as small and medium-sized businesses struggle, they don't present as much competition to bigger businesses, and we end up seeing a lot more market power concentrated, which means ability to just do a larger markups and fuel right. inflation. Are you concerned that this Federal Reserve may 
overdo it, maybe too hawkish here? Because I think even as recently as maybe a couple of weeks ago, this market was thinking about, hey, they're going to pause and then they're going to start cutting rates in the back half of the year. I'm not sure we think that today, but mm-hmm. uh, are you concerned that maybe they'll overdo it? I, I'm not terribly concerned. I think they're going to sort of maybe slow down a little bit in the way that they raised rates. I mean, the GDP figure came on uh, strong. Inflation is down, but it's still uh, relatively high. So yeah. I don't think they're going to want to take their foot off the brake. Whether or not they're going to really push it too far, I'm not quite sure. I think they're really hoping that this time around they can soft land the economy. I mean, this seems like such an exciting time to study business you know, or to be in your job as the dean of a business school, what incredible experiments you have to evaluate um, from, you know, initially quantitative uh, easing to a zero interest rate policy to, you know, fiscal stimulus that amounts to, um, you know, double digit percentages of a GDP in one of the largest nations in the world. How exciting is this for you and for your students right now? It's extremely exciting. There's no shortage of this is the one time that I think, well, I, I'm not teaching this this year because of my dean duties. I wish I was because <laughs> I, I really get excited being able to bring all of the news into the, there's no shortage of topics, um, everything, including with the COVID and, and the labor market and supply chain. And now, you know, the debt ceiling, obviously, the geopolitics it is both a uncertain but from sort of a research and business study and economic study time of a very exciting uh, phase what are the students what are their interests right now like when i was in business school 30 some odd years ago it was consulting and investment banking mm-hmm. now there's so many other companies recruiting on, on campus there's so many uh, technology is such a big drive what are the interests of these kids today? I, I Do you have crypto? altruistic students? Because when Paul was in business school, yes. it was about money, money, and money. <laughs> that's right. So we, we do, we do. There has been a shift, and, and that's been going on, I would say, for about a decade, if not a little bit longer, uh, about students wanting to go to kind of sustainable, more sort of socially responsible companies. You know, they want to take classes in ESG. They want to understand sort of what the social and environmental impact. And, as, as, and also sort of, you know, what are the diversity measures that the companies are employing? So it's not all about money. Consulting yeah. is still big. Investment banking, less so, I would say. The tech industry, especially for schools where I've been, um, yeah, I've worked at. Yeah. Yes, we're very tech heavy. We're a STEM MBA, and and you know, and so our students are going to the tech industry quite a bit with different kinds of roles. You know, they're everywhere from marketing analysts to sort of product managers. But that happens to be the biggest. You know, during employment. the pan- pandemic, when we had those supply chain issues for you know a couple of years, I said boy, I shouldn't have skipped all those supply chain management classes at Duke (laughs) or played golf and decided not to go because those folks are the ones that were really, you know, the, the linchpin in this economy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And now, I mean, whether, you know, even if we're out of hopefully the, the acute phase of COVID, we're still still seeing the geopolitics play an incredible role. Is there demand or what is the demand from international students to come study at the schools you've been at? So um, the biggest group that comes to the United States as a single country tends to be China. We've been seeing, at least in graduate education, a decline in applications across the board in business schools, at least. There's also some provisions about what kind of research they can be involved in because of sort of IP concerns. And um, so there we've seen a decline. We're seeing some replacement by India 
a little bit from right. Africa, a little bit from places like uh, Indonesia and Vietnam. Uh, but, you know, the scale of China is so big, it's, it's almost yes. impossible. To well, and what amazes me is um, I think it's great that you have that kind of diversity. It's helpful to the other students. Um, it's helpful for academia and, you know, the quest for uh, more knowledge. What to me is insane is that we give these international students the best education on earth and then send them back to their countries and don't give them visas to work here. <laughs> it's like if we had, you know, Chinese carpenters coming over and we say, here, we'll give you the very best tools we can possibly, money can possibly buy and, but you can't use them in this country. Yes, I, I, you, you're, you're speaking to the choir here. If I could, you know, with one hand sort of change one policy, it would be about getting visas for educated uh, folks in the United States because it is, it is very fraught. Um, right. It is a very difficult, causes a lot of anxiety, causes a lot of uncertainty. And there's just not, you know, it's all tied to the job. If they change jobs, then they have to go through the process again. It's, I do not understand, given that we, don't have a, a we have an aging population why we're not giving more visas to qualified folks right that we have a large that, that we are, educate right that you, we educate that we invest a, a tremendous amount of resources in yes. exactly exactly <laughs> it should come with I, I feel like the acceptance letter from the University of Rochester uh, business school should also come with like a five-year working visa yes, right because exactly. you're prepared that it's only beneficial to the US economy yes. if you let them work here. Yes, yep. I mean we have STEM STEM programs yes. which gives them three years of visa, but but I'd like to be able to staple a green card to their diplomas if I could. <laughs> Good Absolutely. Stuff. All right, Shevin, thanks so much for joining us, Shevin Yeltkin, Dean at the University of Rochester Business School, uh, returning to your homeland of Turkey next week for a visit. So hopefully that will be a positive experience as those folks continue to deal with very very uh, tough conditions. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.